I'm Jack Gattinella, and tonight we bring you The Wages of Cinema. That was, yes. my, ba- that was my bad Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, it was. I'm Andrew. <laughs> and, and it's I'm good J- to be back after two weeks. Yes, it's been two weeks. It doesn't... I, it feels that long? It, it feels seems like three weeks ago. Yeah, if we're, if we're keeping count, right? Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, how was your week? I used my PS2 for the first time in months. Really? Yes. And what did you play? I played Star Wars Battlefront 2. Oh, okay. It, it's, you fight as stormtroopers and rebel soldiers. As stormtroopers? Yeah. So there are good stormtroopers, or are you bad? No, you're just a stormtrooper. <laughs> Do you hit your head on anything? No. Uh, <laughs> I realized it's not a really good game anymore. Dated? Oh, uh, I don't know if it's dated. I mean, I'm not talking about graphics or anything, but it's... I don't know. It's just it doesn't seem as challenging or as compelling as it was when I first got it when I was in college. I got you. Yeah, I guess that sometimes happens. Uh, I still now ha- Katamari Damacy. That's still isn't that Katamari Damachi? You can call it whatever you want. Yeah, I guess Potato Kamari Shadow. I, I messed that up. Um, but I love that game. That's probably one of my all-time favorite games. You're welcome. Why are you saying you're welcome? Because I'm the one who told you about it. Was it you? Really? Yeah. You didn't what? know about it before you knew, about, knew me. Why well, did I think I... Well, I'm sure you might have told me about it, but I feel like I heard about it from somewhere else, like Matt or someone like that. Matt heard about it from me. Okay, well, I guess that makes sense. And, well, in that case, then, I have you to thank for what could have been my wedding song. Because there was... I'm You're not, thanking me for a hypothetical. Well, yeah, well, no, but it was like I had... Uh, a wedding song in mind if I'd had a big ceremony and it was the song K Sera from that game. Uh, I wanna wad you up into my life. Let's roll up to me. That song's copyrighted by the way, so (laughs) Hey uh, fair use. And and fair use in marriage. But again, it didn't happen, but if I had had my brothers you can't uh, get in the way of true love copyright law. Exactly. We're gonna roll up, you know, uh Two it's, people becoming one, yeah. like a Katamari made of yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, how was your week? It was fine. Um, and thanks for stopping me, because I was about to say who my dream pick would be to direct a Katamari Damachi movie. Oh no, please, go ahead. <laughs> uh, Takashi Mika. Alright. Yeah, you can, can see it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, would be he, totally he a... crazy, but he could do it as a kid's movie, and it would be that much weirder. I mean, I, because it would be about the end pretty... of the world. But it would be like a magical thing because it would be all about how you have this alien that's rolling up the planet yeah. and they, people don't know how to react to it. And so then, I, you know, they, it, all the things become stars and it's it's a happy apocalypse movie. Yeah. I mean, and you got to think about it. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan said, we are made of star stuff. <laughs> so it's like the universe <laughs> is becoming, it, it's, it's the symmetrical life of the universe. Everything comes from stars. Everything goes back to star, back to stars. There you go. <laughs> that so, is the meaning of life, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, and you're welcome. <laughs> Andrew laid it down for you. Um, but uh, yeah, my week's been my week's been all right. Um, you know, just finishing up finals for my uh, classes, and uh, you know, trying to catch up on on movies and stuff, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and uh, you know, doing this and that. Uh, one of my friends put on. A, uh, a an apartment play. What this basically is is um, there's this group called the Representatives, and they 
are uh, this director, this writer director, and this actor. And the actor was uh, in the the pilot, Losers, that I was that I showed you a while back. Yes. Um, what they do is they get somebody to let them use their apartment uh, for a series of nights, and they put on a play in that apartment, and like they use the the person's apartment as like the set, and they they might change. But it's also things. the theater because you, that's where you have the people watching you, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. They in the apartment they set up chairs like they're only they can only fit so many people, uh, yeah. but you're basically watching them perform this play in an apartment. And it's pretty incredible. I've I've now gone to these things for like a couple of years, and they just keep getting better and better. And actually, a couple of them weren't in apartments. Like there was one that was in uh, like a basement of a church, and then there was another like in a loft. But generally, they find an apartment and they put it on there. And you know they're usually kind of intimate character things, but sometimes they get very ambitious. Like one of the plays they adapted. Uh, it might have been Tolstoy. I'm trying to remember the name. I think it was called Bazarov. Does that sound familiar to you? No. Okay. I hate the theater. You hate the theater? You're using the word hate? Uh, not really. Why? But, uh, I don't know. I just never really liked going to plays or anything. But you like movies. That's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. But there's still like a story in prison. Like, what is it about that you don't like, though? I don't know. I think it's just too intimate. Huh. Interesting. Then you would not. Then I guess you would, really wouldn't like this thing. Maybe <laughs> this this may be a waking nightmare for me. <laughs> but anyway, we All should right. probably start talking about the movies that we saw That's since our true. last podcast. That would be a good idea. Now uh, maybe I should start, um, or do you want to start? Be my guest. Okay. And actually, what I'm going to start talking about um, is something that might be kind of interesting to talk about because it relates to something that I'm not sure if we talked about on the air in our previous podcast, but it's something that we've talked about off air, which is this idea of, uh, the cinematic, uh, submersion tank where you the, watch a movie uh, over and over again, the five day cinema immersion tank as exactly. created by welcome to the basement. Matt exactly. Sloan. Yes. On the, on the other, on a show called welcome to the basement, which you all should check out by the way. Um, they watched the movie altered States and it gave them the idea about what if you watched a movie, over and over again, every day, and then um, you uh, could watch, get a different experience every time you watch it. So, so basically, um, you're subjecting yourself to the same movie every night for five nights in a row. Yeah, and um, you uh, the, the choice of movie is probably something a little denser, something that you didn't quite appreciate before. I remember Matt Sloan said he tried it with Bottle Rocket, mm. a movie he didn't really appreciate before, but he got so much into it, yeah, uh, got so much out of it that uh, it was quite an interesting experience. Yes, so and he I, and he concluded that uh, five days was probably the amount of time you could watch the same movie consecutively uh and basically get saturated yes yes exactly um so what does this so have to do is, with you well the point is well i haven't quite done that but i got close to it see i gave all that preamble and <laughs> i know it sounds you look all disappointed now um but what i did was okay no no but here's here's the thing all right <laughs> i watched the same movie three times in one day Really? Yes. Okay. And that movie, movie was Do the Right Thing. Wow. Uh. 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 
was uh, basically uh, part of my class curriculum. Uh, and kind of sadly, coincidentally, a couple days later when I discussed the movie with my class was uh, when they released the Eric Garner decision. I don't know if you've been following that news. Yeah. Um, but point is, though, like what happened was I showed the movie to my morning class and then I showed the movie to my afternoon class. And then later on that night, I decided to watch it one more time uh, on my own. Although this time it was actually with the audio commentary as well. So it was kind of, maybe you could call it two and a half times. I don't know. And I'd actually, and I'd done something similar to this months back where I watched uh, 12 Years a Slave twice in a day. Wow. Which kind of killed my soul. Yeah, I, uh, I think that movie would do that. <laughs> I mean, seeing it once was enough. Uh, seeing it two more times in a day was kind of crazy. But Do the Right Thing, though, is a very entertaining movie in large part. I don't know if you've seen it. I've only seen parts of it because uh, our mutual friend Matt was uh, watching it in the background while I happened to be in the same room. Okay. Yeah, well, basically the movie is about uh, this neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, Bed-Stuy. And it follows all these people over the course of one day and a night, uh, how the neighborhood uh, kind of revolves a little bit around this pizzeria called Sal's Pizza. And Spike Lee's uh, like the pizza delivery boy, and he kind of goes through, you know, these, I wouldn't say adventures, but these little incidents throughout the day. And incidents happen involving, like, another character, because, like, there aren't any, like, black people on, like, the wall of the pizzeria. They're all, like, Italians. And, uh, basically it all leads up to, uh, uh, a riot, basically, like, and then somebody dies as well. Um, but the thing is, as even though that sounds like a very dark ending, and it is, what leads up to it is actually very light in certain parts. Like, there's a lot of life and humor to the film. Which is quite a feat, considering that a movie about race relations would have a difficult time being light in any way. Yes, yeah, that's that's the miracle of the movie. And I'm looking at you, Crash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the perfect comparison. Thank you. That is You're pretty welcome. much spot on. Yes. Um, um, but it was very interesting watching it three times in one day, in large part. I mean, I had seen the movie several times before that over the years. Um, actually, coincidentally, the first time I saw it was in high school. So that was, it was like it kind of came full circle in a, in a way. Um, you kind of looked stunned, so I'm not, I'm just going to leave it at that. But I, uh, it was like the first time I watched it again uh, that day, it was, it was still, it was kind of fresh because it was like, oh, hey, I'm watching this movie. I recognize a lot of scenes. Um, the second time I got to look more at the filmmaking of it, I got to see more of what Spike Lee was doing specifically. Uh, the movie moves a lot. The camera is very expressive. Um, it almost at times moves like a musical. In fact, the movie opens up with a musical sequence. And, uh, yeah. I'm glad you're bringing this up because another one of the movies I watched had uh, a lot of musical sequences I want to talk about. But I'll save that for later. Great, great, great. But And then the third time, I just got you know more of the in-depth, behind-the-scenes stuff, which further made it interesting. So, yeah, that was my first trip into the... the semi-submersion tank i had a similar uh i had a similar experience to you and i substitute teach and the uh a music teacher left behind tangled for their class but of course the class is only 50 minutes long and when you show it to three classes you get to see the first 50 minutes of tangled over and over again and i loved it (laughs) 
I like and, Tangled and it took, a lot. Yeah, Tangled is great. Uh, yeah. And uh, I was so glad I got to see the first first hour so many times. It took me about another six months to finally see the whole thing. But uh, <laughs> so this was a while back, though. This wasn't the last. This was week. about two years ago. Okay. But uh, yeah, I would say Tangled is probably my favorite among like the kind of really new Disney movies. It's like, it's your favorite out of what's come out so far. Well, in in terms of like. You know, there's been, among, like, new crop of movies, I think I, I kind of look at it as starting with Princess and the Frog. Um, that's kind of my yeah, and, part. Yeah. And then you have Princess and the Frog, you have Tangled. There's you Bolt. have Well, both came right before it. Maybe that... Does that's that part of the new thing. It's a Disney film, it's not Pixar. Yeah, And it's one right. of their most recent films, so that counts. Okay. Well, I didn't see You Bolt. haven't seen Bolt? No. That's good. Okay, I trust you. Um, and then also Wreck-It Ralph, which I did like. Haven't seen bit. that yet. I I'm, know I should, because it's video games. It's video games and animation. You will have, like, an epileptic shock watching that movie. There are scenes... <laughs> there is a, The movie opens, without going too much into it, because we'll, we have to move along, but the opening of the movie is the character of Ralph, of the, you know, Wreck-It Ralph. He's in, like, a support group for video game villains. Right, and he's surrounded by everything. Yeah, he's surrounded by Bowser and Zangief and, like, all these people. The ghost from Pac-Man. Yes. One of the ghosts. Yeah, so you need to watch that movie post-haste. I'll put it on my list. So there's that. And then, also, of course, Frozen. Frozen, And, yes. and I like Frozen. I like Frozen, too. But I, I might prefer Tangled. That's okay. Yeah. Like, Tangled was one of those movies where... Craig I, Johnson from Welcome to the Basement said he liked Tangled better than Frozen. Okay. Then I'm in good company. Yeah. Um... Yeah, he like I saw the movie in 3D, and it was actually a really good 3D experience. So, like 3D is very hit and miss for me, but that was a case where, like you know that scene with all the lanterns. Yes. Yeah, that looked great in 3D. Huh. That was really amazing because you could see all the detail with all the different lanterns and stuff. So, all right. So moving along. Um, Let me talk about a movie. The first sure, you, movie, let's, let's switch off then. Yeah, the, the first movie uh, I saw after leaving your house was Transformers Dark of the Moon, just as I promised. Oh and, yeah, I forgot you promised that. Yes, I promised pro I would see that. Promised. And I've seen the, the first three Transformers movies, and let me, t let me tell you the, the experience I've had with all three Transformers please movies. Please go, please. Uh, for the first half of the movie, I will be stuttering in anger. And shouting at my television, what? What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Why aren't you doing things? Yes. And the first time, uh, the first Transformers movie I saw, I did that for the first half. And then for the second half, I took out a pad of paper and said, all right, I can do better than this. Let's see what we can change. This is, all right, let's try this again. See, what's uh, funny is like the first Transformers, that's... I don't think I, that one didn't exactly even make me angry. It just wasn't a good movie. No. It was just I I saw it for what it was right away. It was just total product placement bullshit for teenagers. Yeah. And although it didn't offend me, the second movie offended me. <laughs> like the second movie, it's like you have a movie which has all that money, all that resources, and. They don't even acknowledge... And it has John Turturro. Well, yeah, Tr John Turturro commenting on robot scrotum. Yeah. And, but, like, there's a scene where... I don't even remember what was happening, but they but, went from Washington, D.C. to Egypt, and it was still exactly the same time of day. 
Well, I don't know. That was one of those things that, that's, yeah. That's it's, the I know least it's, I know it's a problem. Oh, it's a small thing, but it's indicative of how much, you know, if you're a filmmaker and you just do not care. It. Exactly. Yeah, no and, little thought. So, and here's how it goes with all three Transformers movies that I've seen so far. Uh, first half, yelling at the screen. Middle of the movie, you, you get over a hump where you stop being angry, and then you just coast downhill, mm-hmm. not really caring much about what happens and just waiting the movie <laughs> out. It's like Michael Bay uh, pacified me through attrition, and I just sat through the rest of the movie and like, okay, that's happening. Okay. At the end. Okay, we're done. Now, here's my question. And I you. didn't feel anything. Was uh, the third I movie... Was, was the third movie any different than the first two? At, at the at its marrow, no. Yes. Except it has the addition, it has the added indignity of involving Buzz Aldrin. Yes. Well, he agreed to be in the movie, so I know, but <laughs> wasn't Leonard Nimoy I'm also? Not, in I'm it not going to find fault with Buzz Aldrin for anything, since he was the second man to walk on the moon. So I think that cancels out any sort of stain on his character, but. <laughs> He, uh, somehow they thought that involving, uh, Buzz Aldrin would, it would, air would make the movie more exciting. Yeah. I but, uh, I don't know. Uh, I would do, we all know the Transformers movies aren't really great, but I want to talk about some things that I noticed, the good parts of Transformers. Okay. Because I think they're there, and you have to recognize that they're good. Okay. Alright, the first movie, I really like how... They set up this idea that Optimus Prime was going to sacrifice himself, like in the original animated yeah. Transformers uh-huh. movie, which I've seen. Yes. Uh, and then they fake us out, and they kill Megatron in a very interesting way. Uh-huh. Someone thought about that. I don't know where that <laughs> thought went later on, but okay, that was pretty clever. Second thing, uh, Peter Cullen's voice. Yeah, of course, his voice is always good. Yeah, and it's not just that he's a good voice actor. It's just like every time he's Optimus Prime in any of the movies, mm-hmm. I instantly believe everything he's saying, no matter what else is around him. Even if he's given total bullcrap to say. Yeah, but I mean, it, for some reason, he... He has authority. He has authority, and... Uh, I don't know, you just want to believe him. Sure. So that's something that the Transformers movies had going for them. In the second movie, there's even something uh, that's good. That scene where Optimus Prime fights and and he gets killed in the middle. Uh, Now, I'm not saying it's great, but there is like this one part. Hold on, hold on. He has a good quote. (laughs) Megatron is is trying to get Sam, who we don't care about. And he says, is and he's like trying to resurrect Cybertron or something because he has the knowledge in his head. It's it's all nonsense. But he says, isn't the and he he says this one line and he says, isn't our planet worth the life of one single puny human? Which is a valid point. We don't care about Shia LaBeouf. No. We would be glad to sacrifice him to have a planet full of uh, full of sentient robots. Uh-huh. But then Optimus Prime has a very good response and he says, you'll never stop at one. Yeah. Which is a pretty good response, and and since it's coming from Peter Cullen's voice, I I immediately believe it. So you found. So I'm a sucker. You found you found the one golden kernel in the feces. Yeah, because I mean, well, you could also say that yeah, he he does that in the middle of the movie, and then near the end they have Robot Heaven. Yes, and that kind of cancels it out. And it does. Come on, give me your face. 
Isn't that like one of the worst yes, lines in also, the history of cinema? Yes, but I still, I, I can't you still help like it, it because I, it comes no, from him. I, I will still. You're watch, having trouble explaining. No, this. no, I'm. For me, I still watch that scene from Transformers Two where he says that line, and I'm still, I still like it. Okay. So maybe that's just me, but that's I think funny. this that's a good, that's one good thing that came out of Transformers. Third one. Not much to say about it, but it has Alan Tudyk. He was okay in it when he was on screen. Yeah. So I, that's it. That's all I got. Yeah, I have no interest in seeing that. After the second one, I just decided this. I cannot take this franchise. Yeah, anymore. you don't have to see. Yeah, I'm not giving. You know, that goes back to the cynical movie thing that we talked about in the last episode as well. Right. So anyway, let's move along because uh, we've given this too much time. Yes. Um. So. Another movie I watched was uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. And hopefully I'm saying that right. Not... Didn't you say you just saw this last time we were talking? No, I said I was going to watch it. Okay. I didn't watch it until uh, about a week or so ago. Um, you know, this is a 1932 German film. Uh, it was the last movie Fritz Lang made uh, before he left Germany. And uh, it, it's, kind, it's kind of a sequel, I guess you could say, to... Uh, the Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler, uh, which was like a four-hour silent epic. Right, that's the one you were talking about. I had seen that before, yes. This second one I hadn't seen, which is in sound, and it kind of concerns how uh, this crime wave erupts in this uh, German city. Uh, Dr. Mabuse is actually behind bars in an asylum, and yet he, he has kind of made this sort of list of orders that has, kind of, that has gotten out to all these criminals, and so now they're trying out all these techniques uh, to, you know, steal jewels and steal all this stuff and this and that. And there's also this weird element involving, like, this uh, voice behind a curtain, which all these criminals listen to and, you know, gives them their demands. Um, and then later in the film, you like, like this one criminal's like, all right, I've had enough! And he pulls aside the curtain and uh, there's, like, nobody Wait. there. I, sorry, should I not spoiled it? Never mind. <laughs> you... <laughs> what happened? Nothing. Just okay. <laughs> keep going. Keep sorry going. Sorry about that. So, no, it was a pretty awesome movie. Um, the thing that I like about it a lot, and this is also what I thought with uh, the first uh, Dr. Mabuse, uh, is that it's kind of like Batman before Batman. It's like you're watching a Batman story, but Batman's not in it. You're okay. just watching, like... Because the whole aspect of Dr. Mabuse in prison... Um, not prison, in an asylum. And this isn't spoiling anything, but he actually dies halfway through the movie. And then... But the crimes keep going on. And people, like... And you're wondering, like, wait, how is this going on? Dr. Mabuse is dead. And it adds to the mystery, and the, the cops are trying to figure it out. Um, the, real, the other interesting thing, which uh, I didn't realize until I looked it up, is... Like the kind of chief investigator who's trying to hunt down Doctor Mabuse was actually is actually played by the same actor and is the same character from M. Oh, um, okay. So it's weird. It's a sequel to Doctor Mabuse, but it's also a sequel to M at the same time as well. Because ah. like the same kind of fat inspector who's trying to chase after Peter Laurie is the same one going after these criminals in this in this movie. Huh. So that's a really uh, interesting thing. I yeah. No, uh, I mean, I've seen him. Yes. And, 
I had no idea that they even would have thought of doing something like that back in the 30s. No, but Fritz Lang, I, I feel like he was kind of ahead of his time in that way. And uh, and actually, my Batman comparison, I found out, also has a little bit extra merit in that uh, uh, Christopher Nolan actually made his brother watch The Testament of Dr. Mabuse before they wrote The Dark Knight. Um, All right. And, yeah, Dr. Mabuse, I think, is better. Anyway, let's move on. I don't want to get okay. in a fight. Uh, along with that, connected with that, I watched a documentary called Fritz Lang, interviewed by William Friedkin, which was just a, a documentary. Like, it was kind of like a hour and a half long interview about Fritz Lang's life and career. Um, it was really good. The one thing I'd say about it is that Fritz Lang kind of starts out uh, asking him about, like, the best story, which is that um, Fritz Lang got approached by Joseph Goebbels in 1933 to become like, the official filmmaker for the Nazis. This is before they got Lenny Riefenstahl involved. And uh, Joseph Goebbels, and, and, and Fritz Lang told Joseph Goebbels, uh, you know, I have some Jewish background. I mean, my uh, father and my grandfather had some Jewish blood. And Joseph Goebbels told him, we will decide who is Aryan and who is not. <laughs> so, as, like, and soon after that, Fritz Lang was like, all right, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he quickly <laughs> fled to France. Um, and, Although that uh, didn't, he, that, they didn't stay safe for long. No, he only, he actually made a movie in France after, uh, in, in 1934. And then he went to America, and that was where he, you know, did everything else in his career. All right. Um, hopefully at some point, um, I'm hoping for, like, a Christmas gift to get, the last Dr. Mabuse movie that he made, which was in 1960. And that was his final movie. And it has such a great title that, like, it's called The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. And speaking of thousands of things, that brings me to another movie that we'll have to mention later. But uh, let me come on uh, to another movie uh, that I saw. came out not too long ago. Okay. Jack the Giant Slayer. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. It had been well-reviewed. Had it been? Reasonably well-reviewed. See, I don't know how they came out. It seemed like another loud, dumb blockbuster. It was a 3D movie. And when you watch it, you see that obviously it was meant to be a 3D movie. Like, there are 360 camera rotations around small objects. There are uh, giant fingers poking right at you. And lots of POV shots. Uh, But... I, I didn't know what to expect. I thought maybe it would be like a loud sort of fairy tale garbling, or I, or it was either going to be a genuinely good adventure film. And it starts out exactly the way I feared it would. And <laughs> it has a problem with its tone Okay. as it starts off. Right, uh, because it's trying to explain too much, and there's like a story in it that they they set it up with that's really bad poetry, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just and it just sounds really clunky, and people say Wait, things so... like, "Oh, I'm a tenant farmer," as if it really matters. With, if what is as that? if we really need to know his place in the feudal hierarchy. Yeah, and I... and the princess in it says like. You know, she's stereotypically like, oh, I need to be around with the people, and I'm not as fragile as you think I am. And <laughs> and, she, and, based, and people blatantly stating what their character is supposed to be. Okay. But then the beanstalk grows out of the ground, and it finally finds its tone, and it becomes very good. Really? 
Yeah. It, okay. It, everything that I was afraid of disappears mm-hmm. right after yeah. the inciting incident. Yeah. And it becomes really a lot of fun. Ewan McGregor's in it. Yeah, see, he and was I the loved... one guy who looked... He looked kind of interesting. Like, he looked like he was having fun. Yeah, and I love Ewan McGregor. Yeah. I don't know why, but... He's just naturally a charming guy. I mean, he makes the prequels watchable. I think you're you right. You could argue. Like, he is one of the best things about them. Yes, and he and he's a good actor, and there uh, and he is good in the movie. Uh, the characters, the they're villain, kind of beca- thin. Uh, well, they're not so much. Well, they're thin, but in the good sort of adventure way, mm. where it's not like, oh, I have a tortured past, or oh, I I, I have like sick family or something like that. Everyone mm. is who they need to be. Okay. And you might call that superficial, but in this case it works because right. you don't need to go very deep. And all the heroes are likable. The princess eventually becomes likable because she stops saying all this nonsense. Right. And, and the climax is really exciting. Uh, I loved it. Even though it was obviously, it had a lot of obvious 3D shots, it was still a lot of fun. And... Even though it got off to a rocky start, I would watch it again. Mm-hmm. I'd watch it with you to show you yes. what exactly I'm talking about. I got a military age male uh, on a cell phone watching the convoy over. If you think he's reporting troop movement, you have a green light. Your call, over. Maybe he's just calling his old lady. <laughs> he stepped off. Hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. Her arms aren't swinging, she's carrying something. Yeah, she's got a grenade, she's got an RKG Russian grenade, she's saying to the kid. You say a woman and a kid? You got eyes on this, can you confirm? Negative. Your call. I saw next um, was a movie which actually has not come out yet. I had the chance to uh, go to a critic screening for the movie American Sniper, which is uh, the new Clint Eastwood movie. This starring... I'm interested in because yeah. the trailers have a tone about them that makes me very interested. It, it seems to have a lot of tension. Yeah, well, I mean, well, the trailer that you saw is actually just like the first scene of the movie. You probably saw the one I did where he's just watching the person, like, making the phone call, and then, like, the mother and kid come out. Right. And he has to wonder if he has to shoot them. And, uh, yeah, the movie has a lot of that kind of tone. I mean, I mean, it's also, it kind of follows this guy's life in terms of, uh, like, how he kind of started out as just, like, a cowboy, and, like, he was doing a lot of, like, rodeo-type work, and it wasn't really fulfilling him. And then it was... You know what I really think would complete my life? becoming a precise yes merciless killing machine well i mean he didn't think of that first well <laughs> and then think about it yeah you can... so regardless of how this happened well it's funny you say that because that is kind of what the movie sort of becomes though it becomes how like this guy that he pl- that bradley cooper plays he was a real person named uh, chris kyle and he fought in the iraq war as a sniper and he has like the most confirmed kills of like, any American in war, at least in this kind of environment. He killed, like, 160 people. Um, 
So yeah, I think that safely puts him on top of every American in history. Yeah, he's kind of like the guy in Glorious Bastards. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Zoller. You remember that whole plot line where they have the the propaganda movie about the guy? Oh yeah, yeah. Now yeah. I remember. Yeah, and he was like a sniper as well. Um, without saying too much, because uh, again, I, have to, I still have to write my review. I have a lot. Of, still have a lot of thoughts. I need to process about it. Um, it's a good movie. I wish it was better. Okay. Um, I see what you mean about that. You know, okay. there are things about it I like a lot. There are some things I wish it did more of. Um, Bradley Cooper is very good in the movie. Um, if you've seen him in other stuff, you I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah, I know who he is. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that that is worth checking out, and it's a pretty intense movie. Um, next movie, um, or, or do you want to talk about your next one? Yes, I would like to talk. Yes, let's, let's switch The one up. I saw after Jack the Giant Slayer is Saving Mr. Banks. Okay, now this Did was Did you one, see this? No, and uh, I was curious to see it. I think some of the reviews I read and some of the buzz I heard, it just kind of felt like, yeah, this is kind of going to be kind of a safe movie about the story of... The making of Mary Poppins and it is uh, well. I don't know how dangerous you can make. Well, no, not dangerous, but you know, it's it's a movie about the making of Mary Poppins from Disney. Right. So it would probably be sanitized in some way. Yeah, you have to think about that when you watch this movie. But I I like this movie because it's part of a very uh, it's part of a subgenre that's very close to my heart, which is movies about making movies. Okay. Uh, movies like this would include Badass or Be Kind, Rewind. Oh, nice. And I just... Uh, and whether they're good or bad, I love movies like that because it's very interesting to... Uh, it, it's very meta. You're looking at a movie about making a movie. And it reveals a lot about how we think about movies as as moviegoers and how, how movie makers view making movies. Well, it, is, it is undoubtedly romanticized after a while. But okay. still... It's a lot of, uh, I don't know how to put this, but it's just... Uh, it looked like Ed Wood for kids, <laughs> if that's <laughs> a way Wood, to Ed Wood, that's it. another movie about making movies, which, yeah. I, which I really enjoy. Yeah, me too. And it, uh, and it made me curious about who Walt Disney really was. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's uh, played by Tom Hanks, who, and he's played as this very charming, uh, but very persistent man. Yeah. And you can see how... Uh, What's her first name? Travers. Pamela Travers, the author of the Mary Poppins book. You can see why she's irritated and irked by him. Well, she's also British. Yeah. (laughs) And it's... uh, Travers and Disney are the main characters. Yeah. And... It's about how, like, the struggle to first sell the rights to make the movie, and then to actually make the movie. And uh, as... I don't know much else about this, what happened, other than what this movie told me. But apparently, Travers was very reluctant to give Disney the rights. And, yeah, this is true. And in order to get this movie done, Disney gave her a lot of power towards, gave her a lot of uh, say over what went into the movie. And in the movie, uh, you could see basically both Disney and Travers's point of view. You could see Travers is very hard to please, and that. And you wonder, well, what's wrong with her? Why did she do this? <laughs> but you can also see it from her point of view. When she meets Disney, he's this very charismatic, but also very uh, somewhat irritating person. He's very positive. Come to Disney World. Yeah. Or come to Disneyland, and I will show you all the magic. And she's very reserved. She's very proper. So she doesn't... You can see why she doesn't think much of Disney. Yeah. And, she, and in a way, 
she sees a lot of a lot in Disney of what we see in Disney, which is this sort of the money printing machine of of Disney animation and exploiting childhood and things like that. And she thinks that Disney is just trying to make this one brick in, make her series a brick in his empire. And that's that's a talk that they have in the movie actually. That's a, a line that Tom Hanks uses. Hmm. Uh, so, but on the other hand, Disney is very uh, he has that sort of infectious sort of child enthusiasm, yeah. which yeah. is very appealing. Uh, and it made me curious about I don't I I don't believe this is what Disney is actually like because as you said, this is a movie about Walt Disney by Disney. Yes, and I don't think they're going to show much bad stuff about him. But it made me really curious about who he actually was. So I plan to to at least read up on Walt Disney because I've, I've read a little bit. There are some there are some pretty dark sides. To him. He was kind of a control freak, from what I've read. Like a lot of the animators, like they had to everything had to be approved in the pre process during process and even kind of the after process. Of and animation the is a very rigorous. <clears throat> method of making movies in any exactly well in any under any circumstances mm -hmm. well, so yeah what i had read well for to give an example though um i had read about how for a very very short period of time in the late 50s i i forget why but chuck jones like went to go animate at uh, disney and he had to leave after a while he couldn't take it because he felt like the atmosphere was so stifling and everyone was kind of miserable because they had to submit to what Disney told them to do. Hmm. And that, there's no hint of that in the movie at all. Yeah, that's why I said that it looked interesting, but it also looked a little safe. And I'm, and I kind of like Mary Poppins. I'm not like that huge a fan of it. I so. really liked Mary Poppins when I was a kid. Okay. So. I mean, it was fine. You know, even as a kid, I kind of thought like, all right, this is fine. I'll go Dick Van Dyke here. And uh, that's my bad. <laughs> Please, we can Van only Dyke. take so many bad impersonations Sorry. in an episode. But um, it, was a, it, was a, it was an entertaining movie. I heard that they do go a little bit into, like, Travers' backstory, too. Yeah, they talk about her childhood. Her father is played by Colin Farrell. Okay. Who I who I like, who I've loved ever since Alexander. Yeah. But uh, And he does a good job. He's, basically, he's... In a way, he's like Disney in the movie. He, he has this childlike view of the world, and his great flaw is that he can't come to terms with adulthood and responsibility. Right. And in a way, Travers is shown as loving her father for this, but also seeing it kind of as as his downfall, and that's part of what's what her problem is. She is trying to come to terms with, uh, with her father's life. Cool. And... Uh, and the things that happened to her in her childhood, but and in that in that sense, it is a very interesting movie. So I do recommend you to watch it. You might not be interested in it more than one I, more viewing, but more than one viewing. But uh, it's definitely worth seeing. You know what? Like he, at the time, I, didn't I see just it to see because... uh, just to see Tom Hanks play Walt Disney. Oh yeah, no, and, no, uh, that was... and the guy from Cabin in the Woods is in it. <laughs> one of the technicians, I forget his name, uh, oh. Citizen. The guy who like the mermaid oh. guy. Oh, oh, okay. He's in it. He's, oh, he's great! I, I love movies. that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what it was when it, I I don't know who he is or what character he played in either movies, but I automatically assume he's awesome because he was in Captain yeah. in the Woods. So well, what I would go. say is that you know like I didn't see it when it came out in theaters because it didn't look like something that 
I wasn't going to rush out to see in theaters. But yeah. now that it's on DVD or TV, that's that's different. Check it out. Of course. Um, so I have so I don't know how many more you want to talk about. But I have me... one more. I'll let you go first. Okay. Um, well, I mean, how many more do you have on your list? I have I have a good few. Um, a good but... few is that like three or is it like ten? Here, I'm showing you the list right now. You can kind of see what I'm talking about. All now. right. All okay. Right. So, like I said, I'll try to go through these fairly quickly, or, or as fast as I can. Um, and a couple of them I'll talk about kind of in a combo. Um, first documentary uh, that I've seen in a, in a little while that really blew me away is called uh, Citizen Four. Laura. At this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. I am a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit, and subject line you type is in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. In the end, if you publish the source material, I will likely be immediately implicated. I ask only that you ensure this information makes it home to the American public. Thank you, and be careful. I, am, I wish I, I'm blanking on the director's name. It's a, a woman who uh, um, has actually done a couple other documentaries before. Uh, it's about Snowden. Thank you, yes. Well, it, the topic is about Snowden. Basically, this woman was actually involved uh, directly with Snowden as... She was emailed, contacted by Edward Snowden uh, when he was kind of deciding, I'm going to put these documents out there into the world. And she con he actually contacted her before uh, he contacted uh, Glenn Greenwald, who was the journalist at The Guardian who assisted in getting these uh, documents and all this information out into the world. So the documentary, System 4, kind of follows kind of her experience in a way of being there with Snowden in the actual hotel room when these interviews first took place. And we see a lot of the video of the, of the initial interview happening where he talks about, you know, like it's about the whole situation with the NSA surveillance program. So he's actually in this film. Oh yeah. He's in it quite a bit. And it's uh, well, it was before he went into hiding. It was when he, you know, and it wasn't like he was going all over the press. He was basically t talking to this, these two journalists from The Guardian and this woman who was a documentary filmmaker who had done stuff on Iraq, and I guess he, she had kind of hit his radar as someone who kind of put herself on the line um, in terms of doing these things that kind of got her in trouble because she was uh, putting information in her documentaries that were uh, getting notice. And so the movie... It's it's a really great movie in in part because if you've been following the case, it doesn't give you a ton of new information, but I could see this movie being watched like 5, 10, 20 years from now and people will be able to see the whole story, kind of how it unfolded and how um you know, basically the NSA has been following people for many years and not just, you know, like they've been looking at you know, what sites you've been going to, they have access to, like, your social media, they have this and that. Newsflash, everyone is looking at porn. 
possibly. Yes. But to be serious for a moment. Yeah, it's but it's a fascinating it's... movie because I mean, well, the, in part it's it shows Snowden. She also has video of these uh, uh, hearings that were also going on where uh, there are also a couple other whistleblowers, though not quite on the profile of Snowden, who were like testifying in uh, in a couple of courts about the program. Like there were other uh, people in the NSA or CIA who knew that these programs were going on and uh, it's just a it's just and so fascinating and it made but me feel the, completely what's the main thrust of the documentary we have all these people talking about the main what's thrust. going on what's going on but what is the what urge, is the documentary's point the point well first of all it's just it's the urgency of it everything is happening in the present tense in it in a lot of documentaries you see some like a what we call like a talking head. We see somebody being interviewed about like the subject. And you say, so then when Edward Snorton did when Edward Snorton did this, then he went to did blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. Like the fog of war. Yeah, kind of like that, but well, you know, but other documentaries though like that. I mean that We yeah, we know what you're talking about. Yeah. I got uh, this, an expert talking. This movie she this director has, you know, multiple cameras in a setting, including when she's interviewing Snowden in her in this hotel room for several days. And so it takes on the quality of watching like a fiction film. You're watching someone cutting together things happening in real time, but it's not presented like, you know, the usual talking heads movie. I mean, you're watching people talk, but you're not watching it in that way. It almost feels like you're watching just like a spy movie or something like that. You're watching somebody who's a whistleblower in like a kind of dramatized fiction setting um, so in a way, like, she's kind of cha trying to change the form of, like, the documentary. It's a little bit more closer to, like, a fly-on-the-wall approach, maybe, or the cinema verite type movies. Like, I don't know if you've seen, like, Gimme Shelter or something like no, that. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, you should, you I have a feeling that. this podcast is going to become a lot like, oh, have you seen this? No. Have you seen this? No. Well, I don't mean to do it like that, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of movies out in this world. Well, this eventually one, we'll find one we both watch. Yeah. Well, this. Well, anyway, this movie will probably uh, pop up again on my best of the year list uh, later on. It's it's a really tremendous movie, and it left me pretty paranoid. Like when I was oh. when I was leaving the movie, I I had this song. I don't know if you've heard the song from the '80s called "Somebody's Watching Me." Yeah. I could always be like somebody's watching me. Yeah, yeah, that was in my head after the movie because it's like, like somebody I... is always watching you. Yes. We now know that exactly. Thanks, um, guys. Yes, exactly. So NSA, I hope you love the podcast. We do it for you mm -hmm. because listen to all these stuff, things on the internet. It's got to be boring sometimes. I hope you like movies. Yes, thank you, thank Frank you so much from the NSA. Yeah, I bet we probably There's bound to be someone named Frank in the NSA. We probably make a good like Christmas party or something like that. Sounds good. Yeah. So what's your last movie? Alright, my last movie is one that you know about. I know okay. you definitely haven't seen. And you talked about The Ten Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse. The, the Thousand Eyes. The, the Thousand Eyes. And we talked about musicals. Well, here's one that puts them both together. The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T. I, I just a, watched this today. A second before you said that, I suddenly realized what you were talking about. Yes. The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T. The Had you seen this before? No, I hadn't seen it. I had only heard about it a year ago. Because of the Welcome to the Basement. Yes. So I and 
Well, <laughs> it looked like quite the experience. It is quite the experience. The style is marvelous, and it's the best Dr. Seuss movie that's ever been made. For those of you who don't know, well, the 5,000 like feet... competition's not that fierce. I know, but the five. Uh, there's a reason for that, though. That has to do with this movie. <laughs> the Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T was a movie that came out in 1953 that was written by Dr. Seuss, okay. Ted Geisel, and it was a massive flop when it came out. And because of this, Dr. Seuss never went back to Hollywood, which is, and that's why none of that's why all the movies that have come out since uh, all all the Dr. Seuss movies that have come out recently came out after his death. They're, the they're Lorax, ba- they're the cat children. And, yes, the Cat in the Hat, the Grinch with Jim Carrey. Uh, I don't know how the the first Grinch movie got made. Well, Horton Hears a Who. That was another one. Oh, did they? Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> That also had Jim Carrey in it, didn't it? Yes, it did. He did a voice. Yeah. I have to say, when I first saw The Grinch, I did kind of like it. I kind of liked it, too. I was... It was a guilty pleasure. Yeah. But they they don't hold a candle to this movie, because, first of, first of all, it's not a book. And it's... But if it was a book, it would be like one of those longer Dr. Seuss books. Like, uh, there's another book that has a eerily similar title called, I think, The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins. <laughs> Which I remember from my childhood, and it's all about this... I've never heard of it. It's all about this kid who, like, he's told to take off his hat in front of the king, but each time he takes off his hat, there's another hat under it. But that's not the point. The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T is about this boy who has to practice piano, and he has a dream that his piano teacher is (laughs) torturing him... Yes. ...and uh, forcing him to play this giant piano. Faster! 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 Play faster! (laughs) Faster! (laughs) I was just pretending that was... Yeah. And uh, the world was not ready for it. Because yeah. if this had come out in the 60s, then it would have become a cult classic. Uh, or it would have at least made its money back. But it's a fascinating picture because it has all the Dr. Seuss imagery that you've seen in his books, except put on the big screen, and put on the big screen really well. Cool. There are some shots that are that will make... <laughs> There's a shot where... There are two false hands playing a keyboard on a TV and saying, practice makes perfect, practice makes perfect, practice <laughs> makes perfect. It's like 1984, but with pianos. <laughs> that's that's pretty terrifying. And <laughs> and it's it's got so many weird things, and s- some of them are kind of dark. Ultimately, it's harmless, because there are no big scares in it or anything, but just very weird things. And it's one of those kids movies that is really sophisticated and takes chances. It it does take chances. That's the thing that I that I noticed. It's yeah, I see you looking at your notes and, there. And the best part is that all the actors and the and the one actress, they aren't winking to the camera or hand, hamming it up. They are genuinely doing their best with it. And I I I'd love to know what was going on in the heads of <laughs> these actors. Uh, uh, but there's one actor who stands out, who is Hans uh, Hans Conride, who okay. plays Dr. T, Dr. Tuoger, the mm-hmm. villain. And you'd know him because he was the voice of Captain Hook in Peter Pan. Oh. And Snidely Whiplash. Okay. And... He uh, he was also in some television, like in the Danny Thomas show and like and a few episodes of the Lucy show. I think that looking at his credits, he probably had fun doing this. Yeah, and that's the thing. He just totally goes into it, and he doesn't. He gets so close to hamming it up, 
but he he just inches towards it and it becomes and he just never quite gets there and hmm. he's awesome in it and he just Sweet. has so much energy and he does uh but and he's just a marvelous villain nice if you saw saw him you probably think he was one of the best movie villains ever he, and Hans Conrad does such a fantastic job he's just fascinating to watch he, the way he uses his voice and the way he poses villainously mm-hmm. and it, oh he's he's rich you 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 love it you're 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 ecstatic i'm ecstatic and and dr t is ecstatic in his villainy mm-hmm. uh, the only problem with the movie is that some of is the is it mu- kind of silly well the silliness is not the problem okay. of the movie. Right. The problem is is that it is also technically musical because there's several musical numbers, and some of them are, are shot in like this very like there there's this one scene where two characters are singing together, and basically all it is is a close up of their two faces. Oh, like th- there are just weird uh, things where they're singing songs and uh, they don't really have much visual pu- visual punch. Are the like, songs any good? The songs are good. I think, uh, yeah, Dr. Seuss wrote the lyrics to the songs. Oh, okay. And the songs are good, but when the characters are singing them, in some of them they're just, like, walking through the set or they're just close-ups of their faces, and uh, there's just not much energy to it, Mm. like, in in the visuals. But then, like, Half of them are like that, and then half of them are just really awesome. There's like a song where Doctor Twilliker dresses up with his servants. That's yeah. that's really awesome. And there's Twilliker. An, yeah, Doctor Twilliker. No, I'm just trying to picture that name. I never really hear that. Twilliker with a K. Okay. Uh, there's also oh man, <laughs> I'm trying to think that. There are other good musical numbers, but the best one is one that's not even necessary, where you could have skipped it and the plot would have been fine, where the the main character, Bart, goes down into the dungeon where all the musicians are held who aren't piano players, Mm -hmm. and they just do this big orchestral number where they're dancing and playing their instruments. And some of them are just weird... uh, Some of them are like normal instruments, and some of them are just really weird instruments. (laughs) And it goes on for like ten minutes... And it gets weirder and weirder and funnier and more energetic. It's like they put. It's like they took all the energy out of some of the music musical numbers and put it into that one. <laughs> and it's a load of fun. Jeez. It almost makes up for the non-energetic musical numbers. Okay, I get what you're saying. And so it's like you like the songs, you just didn't like how they were presented. Yeah, it's if you saw it, you'd see that. Like, I think I can, it, I think I like, got why it. Why is it just a close up of these two people, and why is this character just walking through the set while they're singing? Like, why don't why don't you cut to them doing something else, or possibly dancing? Or, yeah. I don't <laughs> put something out there. Yeah, it's like they kind of got lazy uh, with some of them. Mm-hmm. But it is just a very simple story, too. Like this doctor is just tormenting this boy by making him play the piano. Gotcha. This very simple uh, story that is just really well told hmm. with fantastic visuals, and it's it's a movie that's coming back. It's getting getting its cult status hmm. right now. It's getting its second life, like Great. like we talked about. And the more people who see it, the better it's going to be. Uh, if you get a chance, find the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T and watch it 
with whoever you yeah. happen to have, <laughs> with your family, with your friends, with your dog. I don't care. Just go ahead. Hmm. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty awesome, man. I'm maybe I'll check that out for and and wait. wait so really fast though, what does it like have to do with Christmas? Nothing. <laughs> so there's so why they do that as their Christmas movie on Welcome to the Basement? I don't know. They said when they did when they watched it on Welcome to the Basement, the, the parameters were a Christmas or a family movie. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. All right. Um. Okay. So let me go through some of these now. Uh, my next movie I like to talk about is called Foxcatcher. Um, this is another new movie that's out now in theaters. Uh, the movie stars uh, Channing Tatum and uh, Steve Carell, and also uh, Mark Ruffalo. Is How is Channing people. Tatum in this movie? Here's what I would say right off the bat. He's actually pretty good. Um, <laughs> you're giving me like an excited look. I mean, the thing about Channing Tatum is that up until now, and maybe even still, I don't even think he's like a very good dramatic actor. I've seen him in movies, and you see me clenching my jaw. <laughs> that's the extent to his dramatic acting in a lot of the movies I've seen with him. Um, I haven't seen a lot of them, but I've, I've really enjoyed him as a comedic actor. If you ever see any of the Jump Street movies, you know, 21 or 22 Jump Street, or uh, Magic Mike is another movie where That's the he, one I was thinking of when you said Channing Tatum. Yeah, you, you were excited about strippers. <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't excited about strippers, Jack? Yes, they have such colorful dances, don't they? Um, you know better than me. Anyway. Well, yeah. But Channing Tatum... All right. Like, and what good, is good this, singer there. And what is this movie? The here? movie is about... It's set in the late 80s. It's based on a true story. Um, it's like around, Saving Mr. Banks? Well, this one is a bit of a different tone. Um, this one comes from the director of the movies Capote and Moneyball. Okay. And it surrounds the story of... Uh, the Schultz brothers, Mark Schultz, which is played by Dan Tatum. And Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. <laughs> this is a very serious movie. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, Charles Schultz, he, Charles Schultz is Foxcatcher. Now I want to see that movie. Do, no. do, do, okay. Do, 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 do. All right. All right, so anyway, uh, Mark and David Schultz, uh, Chang Tatum and Mark Ruffalo, uh, were wrestlers in uh, the mid-'80s. And they actually won uh, gold medals at the 1984 Olympics. Okay. And the movie takes place around 1987, 1988, largely. And uh, involves how, like, these brothers, they, they work out at this uh, gym. Uh, but the younger, and the, and the older brother, who's Mark Ruffalo, he kind of has his stuff together. He has a family. He kind of runs this gym and helps people wrestle. But Mark Schultz is kind of aimless. He doesn't really know what he's doing with his life. He's actually kind of poor. Uh, it kind of briefly shows what happens, like I guess, to people like Olympic wrestlers when they don't really have the Olympics to work for. But the movie largely is is really about how this billionaire uh, named John Dupont of uh, the Dupont family, uh, which is one of the wealthiest families in America, uh, re reached out to Mark Schultz uh, and brought him to his like giant mansion and. This guy, John DuPont, who is this kind of, like, weird kind of guy who, uh, if, I, if I showed you a picture of what Steve Carell looks like in this movie, you would not recognize him at all. Hmm. It's, like, that kind of level of, uh, like, he has all this makeup on, and he looks unrecognizable. 
Um, and basically he asked Mark Schultz uh, to kind of create kind of a wrestling camp at his mansion. And so the movie kind of follows how John DuPont brings Mark Schultz into his world. Um, Mark Schultz is kind of taken with how rich this guy is, how much uh, this guy likes Mark Schultz. Uh, but he kind of gets corrupted by this, and he starts kind of taking drugs. He kind of has self-esteem issues. Uh, he starts looking at his older brother as kind of putting him down for a while, even though that's not really the case. Um, and it's a lot about, like, these psychological head games that are going on between this rich guy, John DuPont, and this this wrestler. And it's a very eerie movie. Uh, and it took me some time to think about it, but I kind of equated it in a way to almost being like a horror movie, or like a vampire movie, because you have this guy, Mark Schultz, who comes to uh, this guy's mansion, and uh, this guy, John DuPont, when you, when you meet him, he's kind of mostly just sitting in a chair, and, and I talk like this, I'm John DuPont, I want, to, I want to be a coach, I think you could be a good wrestler, and... And, like, you almost feel like this monster is letting this guy, is bringing this guy into his world and transforming him. Exactly, yeah. It's almost like, it's yeah, it's interesting because it's like, it's like a Dracula movie, only... To be with the vampire? Yeah, well, not not quite like that. Alright, never mind. But, (laughs) I mean, the, the one thing against the movie is that the tone of it is kind of dour. It's very... It's and it's a sad movie because ultimately this again this is based on a true story. Ultimately, I'm not spoiling anything, but John Dupont ended up killing someone, and it, it ends up kind of being like a true crime story. But it's a really slow burn to kind of get to who he kills and you know what happened. But uh, um, but it's a really fascinating movie. I I hasten to say that it's great, but it really takes a you know a very serious approach to this material steve carell has not been in anything else like this but he's absolutely terrifying and it's like at times i was watching him with a face like oh god what's he gonna do next and um and chang tatum the thing about him in this movie is that he i mean first of all he's playing a wrestler he's playing like this big muscular guy yeah and so he mostly is kind of subdued he's not he's kind of low-key he only has one scene or a couple of scenes where he really lets out emotionally, and that's he's in kind of like the shadows in those scenes. Um, so he's actually really good because he's subtle. He kind of underplays a lot of stuff. And, of course, Mark Ruffalo is always good. I kind of feel like Mark Ruffalo is probably going to be overlooked come, like, award season yeah. because cause Steve Carell has the more noticeable performance because of all the makeup and... That he's kind of playing eccentric. Well, you have Steve Carell is doing the the eccentric performance, and then you have Channing Tatum who's surprising everybody right yes, now. Yes, exactly. He's, he's turning a corner somehow in his career. It seems. He, it's really I, yeah, and he's he's getting work that I wouldn't have expected. I mean, he's going to soon be in a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, he's going to be playing Gambit in the next X Men movie. Oh, jeez. Uh, which is gonna I be didn't even weird. hear that. Yeah, that's one of the newest things. And, and yeah, his career has just taken off. And yeah, but seeing how those two performances are in the same movie, Mark Ruffalo, you know, being solid as always. I mean, yeah, he's definitely going to be overlooked. Yeah, and he has a lot of good scenes. Oh, like, I, oh, I'm just doing well as I usually did. And... <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, we've so. seen that before, Ruffalo. 
Yeah, we know what you can do. Go go away. You're fine. Um, <laughs> go be the Hulk. Um, <laughs> so Ruffalo, sad. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always competent. Uh, i got one no oscar for you next (laughs) yes next so recommended uh very much so okay so the next one i want to talk about i'm actually going to kind of talk about two movies together in a way um the thing is twice as long i'll try not to make it like that good Um, go on but the thing is that this is a subject that you will have you have some insight i think into this because you read one of his books I think. Now, you could correct me if I'm wrong. I think I stepped over pistachio just now, so don't worry about that. Alright, never mind. Um, <laughs> or something. I stepped over something, but it doesn't matter. Alright, anyway. I've read one of the books. Okay. What are we talking about? Um, I'm talking about two movies uh, regarding Stephen Hawking. Oh, yes. Okay, so the first movie, which is out in the theaters now, and it's kind of getting some buzz because it's up for Golden Globes. Uh, Foxcatcher also got nominated for Golden Globes as well. Can I can I interrupt you for one second? Please. Academy Awards are the big ones. That's kind of the big ones. The Golden Globes are kind of like the 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 like the, the younger stepbrother to the Oscars. Okay. Go on. I'm going to digest that information as you talk. Okay, I thought you had another comment about that. Give it time. Okay. Alright, well anyway, the two movies I watched are one is in theaters, and that's the theory of everything. The other movie is called A Brief History of Time, which is actually an Errol Morris documentary about Stephen Oh, Hawking. I gotta take a look at this. You would This want, will help me. See, you would want... That's why I suggested you should watch this movie. And uh, you can watch it. It's online. I think. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you how to watch it later on. Um, basically, the theory of everything... NSA, I hope you're paying attention. Yes. <laughs> you could hear it wasn't me who brought this up. <laughs> Sorry. Um... <laughs> I see what you're talking about, though, about reading about uh, yeah, yeah books I've read, because I have read one book by Stephen Hawking. Okay. I haven't read, uh, I didn't read A Brief History of Time. I wrote the book that, that he wrote after that. Okay. Uh, I forget what it's called. Um, but before you get to that, let me just describe the two movies, and then we can maybe get into that. The first of. one is the biopic the, about Yeah, Stephen, this is called The Theory Hawking. of Everything. Um, it basically is actually inspired a lot by... Um, Stephen Hawking's ex-wife, uh, he, she wrote a book uh, called The Theory of Everything, which kind of so traced her relationship. So scientists have ex-wives. And with Stephen Hawking, like, you wonder kind of from the outside, like, like, what, how does that work? How does Stephen Hawking leave his wife to, for someone else? Like, if you're, you know, you're in your wheelchair for all those years, your wife is taking care of you for all that time, you basically can't move anywhere, and then you meet someone new, and you decide, yeah, I'm leaving you and going with this woman. I'm not going to judge you, Stephen Hawking, but <laughs> I whatever not... you're doing, you have us dumbfounded. I will not judge you either, Andrew. I was I, I was trying to work on my Stephen Hawking invitation, but... What did I tell you about bad impersonations? I try to do them so that you can hear them from my voice. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? Kermit the Frog with a speaking <laughs> spell. All right. So okay, so anyway, he, the theory of everything, it's a biopic tracing Stephen Hawking when he met his wife, Jane, at Cambridge. And before kind of, he was paralyzed. It, yeah, I mean, well, the first act of the movie kind of introduces what happened to him. Basically, he was going for his Ph.D. in cosmology. 
he got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is actually what he has, ALS. And he was told he had only two years to live. And what what's fascinating about the early part of the movie, which I thought was kind of the best part for me, is that like before he really got diagnosed, Stephen King, you know, he was interested in cosmology. Stephen he was, Hawking. What did I just say? You just said Stephen King. <sighs> because uh, Stephen King is all over the place. Sorry. That's... Uh... All right. Well, I got... Oh, Stephen, right? I got one name right. All right. Continue. Stephen Hawking got ALS. But before that, Stephen Hawking, he's at Cambridge. He's learning about, you know, the space and time. But he's only... He's kind of gradually growing interest. He's not full-blown into it just yet. Um, But when he's diagnosed, it kind of gives him that urge to kind of go a little bit more forward and, you know, find his topic because, you know, he needed to go for his PhD. Right. And what ultimately he discovered and what kind of got him his first sort of, I don't know if you would call it claim to fame, but what got him renowned in Cambridge was his theory about black holes, which, and the idea that, um, you know, can a black hole have something else to it than just being a black hole? Like, can we actually say something about the direction of time? Now, this actually came after his, after he got his PhD. Um, like, I might be confusing some of his theories here, but the point is, he, uh, I mean, his PhD was on black holes, and he found something about it that involved light. Um, like, he was just, uh, he just got this idea from looking at something, like, uh, I think it was like a burning ember or something like that and it sort of sparked his imagination about is there energy in a black hole can we actually see if a black hole can uh radiate you know have radiation because all you think of a black hole is it's just a black hole but what if it's more than that so where does this lead to in our film well this is just a part of it like oh, again right. it's it sort of traces how he first got his theories going and then how his body was deteriorating and the thing about the movie is, you know, I was more interested in that than I, ultimately the relationship part of it. It's good, but it could have been a little bit stronger. It's a basic biopic. You're watching, you know, this person struggling, a little bit like the, the you know, A Beautiful Mind, where you're watching someone who's really brilliant, but they have this mental and personal baggage, and but they have this woman by their side who's going to try to get them through it. And, you know, it's a feel-good movie. So the most interesting parts of the movies are Stephen Hawking's actual work. Probably more more like that, yeah. And seeing how he was kind of understanding in his way uh, how to process space and time. I mean, his biggest accomplishment, which we also see in A Brief History of Time, is the whole idea, and you can maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that if we can chart... Um, how you know where the universe is going to end like how it began if we can kind of compute um that time has a certain function going forward um can we can we find out how the where the big bang began well i can't tell you if we were right because I, that was the problem i had with stephen Haw hawking's book was it up too to a certain point he he talked about einstein and i knew a little bit about einstein before i read that book and I understood, but then once I, I hit a wall where everything became in, unintelligible. Uh -oh. And it's not because 
I don't think it's because it's a bad book. I mean, it's he written... just couldn't explain himself well. No, I don't think that's the problem either. It's just I just ran up against a whole bunch of things that I didn't recognize. Okay. Like like Hawking was trying to explain a whole bunch of stuff that I just was not ready for. Yeah. So I either have to read that book again. Yeah. Because because when you start talking about things other than the observable universe mm-hmm. <laughs> and about strings. Yes. And uh and alternate dimensions which we can only represent in mathematics. <laughs> yeah. Then it becomes it becomes mm-hmm. very abstract for me. I'm not a math person. I'm a history yeah. person. I like words and I like dates. Okay. I mean, I know you like <laughs> when the, now. I know you like space, so that's probably in part why I love you read Hawking, yes. right? Well, he's also an interesting guy. Oh yeah, very interesting. I, actually, you know what I like? What I like about Stephen Hawking, why I, I like seeing him, like the actor playing in the movie Eddie Redmayne, and then also this documentary. It's like. You know, it wasn't, you know, not that he asked for this disease or anything like that, but the way that he is now, you know, he rolls around, he's in place, he talks through this computer, and he's, like, one of the most brilliant people about his subject. He seems like a character in a science fiction movie. He's, like, the guy that rolls around and talks in his computer voice, and something about him just seems, like, extraordinary. Just He's in... like Professor X, only with the... Uh, yeah, with kind of Professor X. Out. Yeah, with the voice. Um, and the... the thing about it, uh, Stephen Hawking is that when he was in Cambridge, he wasn't, you know, just a super nerd. He organized a, ro- a rowing team when Cambridge yeah, had no they show, rowing Yeah, they team. show a little bit of that in the movie. Like, he was and the he was guy a bit on of a, there. And I, I think he was a bit of a, a, of a prankster. And a yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah, and it's really sad that he he he's was stricken with ALS. But still, I mean, considering what he's done, mm-hmm. uh, you can't say he hasn't been productive. Yeah, no, they ha- and they show. I don't want to say productive as if I'm just uh, the thing about just the, a mission, the thing about yeah. the movie that works best is the fact that it shows that he had a sense of humor about things. Like he was, you know, a very a genuinely humorous, amusing guy. Like. Probably one of the highlights of the movie for me is like when he first gets his computer voice, um, he kind of messes with his kids. Um, and of course he's British, so this makes sense. He puts like a, he has a cardboard box over his head and he ro- rolls around going, exterminate, exterminate. <laughs> <laughs> like a Dalek on See, Doctor Who. that is why Stephen Hawking is cool. Yes. As a, as a, yeah, Stephen. Uh, so, and all, so that was the, um, like I said, theory of everything, good biopic. It's it's okay to check out. It's not essential. Whereas a brief Jack history gives of time, you permission. It's okay to check out. Yes, I, the universe does as well. Um, but brief history of time is related with that. Only again, it's a documentary. It's Errol Morris. So it it uh, and that movie is more about. It has a. It, it's kind of half and half. It's about. Other people talking about his life. Again, going more of the conventional talking heads approach with his family and colleagues talking about his life and his research. And then Hawking himself. Well, well, Errol Morris is the king of the talking head. Yes, but also, and well, he has the special technique of uh, what they call the interotron. Yes. Where he actually That's has another joke this... played by Stephen Hawking. I am interotron. <laughs> hey, I did Interrogate. Didn't... Interrogate. Uh, now I'm just thinking of uh, there are a couple of spoofs on Family Guy where they made fun of Stephen Hawking. Stephen and, Hawking uh, was on an episode of Futurama. 
and the like Simpsons. actually him oh okay yeah they sh- uh i've i've seen his action figure yeah they made a simpsons action figure that makes sense he'd be on futurama i didn't know he was on the simpsons well he uh, <laughs> yeah he was that's not the point yeah but by the way stephen hawking cool so yeah noticed. so the point yeah so the point is like brief history of time like one last thing i'll say about it, the first shot of the movie you hear stephen hawking say which came first the chicken or the egg and all of a sudden a chicken, chicken. yeah well, all of a sudden the chicken pops up on screen so that's when you know you're in good hands yeah. with Errol Morris. Nice. And I highly recommend A Brief History of Time, especially to you. Good. Um, It'll help me figure out that book. All right. So my next couple movies... Uh, I don't know. I'm almost done. Um, oh, thank God. All right. <laughs> hey, you watched movies, too. I didn't watch all the movies. Uh, I was trying to catch up. You remember last week I only watched one. Yeah. All right. You, you were disgraceful. Okay. But go on. All right. I did a double feature of... The Big Sleep and The Blue Dahlia. Now, have you seen The Blue, the Big Sleep? That's Humphrey Bogart, right? It's Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And, and that's the one with the ending with the machine gun and the door and things. That does happen, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler? Uh, yeah. I don't remember much of. about it. Well, And I remember some people saying that it's a very confusing movie. It and it sort of is, and it I remember isn't. the ending, and I remember a little bit of the beginning, but I don't remember quite what it was about. Yeah, well, the thing is, yeah, I mean, the the, the thing for me recently was that I also read the book of the Big Sleep. That was sort of my idea was I'm going to read the book of the Big Sleep, and I'm going to either finish the book or get really close to reading to finishing it when I see the movie again. And I'd seen the movie a couple of times. I, I love the movie. It's about uh, Philip Marlowe, and uh, he gets assigned uh, a case uh, due to this this guy in a wheelchair. That's uh, continuing our theme of guys in wheelchairs for now. Um, his name, and uh, he... Worst theme ever. Yes. Um, he's getting blackmailed by uh, somebody, and, you know, Marlowe has to find out who it is. Um, one thing leads to another. There's uh, involves also the old guy... Uh, has these two daughters, and uh, one of them is Lauren Bacall. They're sisters. And, They're his yeah. daughters. They're his sisters. <laughs> I should be smacking you when you're saying that. So, Philip Marlowe has to find out how's, who's blackmailing this guy. In yeah, but then it gets a little more complicated than that because he It gets always involved. gets more complicated than that. I know. It's Phil Noir. Yeah, well, then he... Yeah, and there's, like, a murder, and then uh, there's, like, uh, a gambler who runs a joint, and... Um, you know, lots of things happen. The thing that's great about the movie is that it's not even so much about the plot because the bl- the plot is good. It's a good, solid story, but it's more about the character interactions and the dialogue. It's a Howard Hawks film, and the guy see who made ha- the original, the thing that came from another world. Well, he produced it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is called his. Yeah, he also did his girl Friday, bringing oh, a baby. I love that. Yeah, his girl Friday is uh, really great. Too. My brother saw that in his journalism class. That's a great movie to see in a journalism yeah. class. I wish I took that class. Yeah. Um, you see, the best thing about being a teacher is you have to choose the right movies. Yes. And after you finish talking about this movie, I'm going to talk about another classroom movie experience I had yeah. well, last week. Go well, on. Well, I'll talk about these two movies, like I said, combined. Sorry, because, again, The Big Sleep, you know, really classic movie. And the, the, the thing that's interesting about The Big Sleep, the book versus the movie, is that the book is a classic hard-boiled 
film noir book. Right. I say film noir book. That doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but but I still knew what you were talking. You, you know about. what I'm talking about. I mean, it's Raymond Chandler. He was like the king of this kind of stuff. Him and Dashiell Hammett were, you know, the best at doing these kind of hard boiled detective stories. And The Big Sleep, he gets away with a lot more than the movie could have at the time. You know, there's more nudity. There's a little bit more sex. There's more language. Um, there's actually a character in The Big Sleep uh, who's like this young like hoodlum that Marlowe catches, and all he says over and over again is, go F yourself. And the book actually bleeps out the word F, you yeah. know, the F word, with like a, a stroke of the, like a line. Um, so the book does that. The movie is a classic, you know, golden age Hollywood type movie. You know, you have, again, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And we'll actually talk about Lauren Bacall in a minute again. Um... You know, and their chemistry was just hypnotic. I mean, they were just a great pairing, you know, them together on screen. So you have that movie, and I that was paired up at the movie theater I saw with uh, The Blue Dahlia, which was this other film noir. Now explain this to me. Uh, uh, what is this about? Because we might have heard of The Black Dahlia, which well, is probably something totally different, unless you're It is and it isn't. Let me get to that in a moment. Okay, but first, I'll explain what I mean about that. Um, but first, the Blue Dahlia is this is this movie about um, these guys that come home from the war. Um, one of them is a you know bit, damn well which war, the war, the 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 war that Ken Burns called the war. Uh, so you know that's the war, um, <laughs> World War Two. <II>. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, these three guys. One of them is kind of you know okay. One of them is kind of messed up. He has like a plate in his head and. He, you know, he hears music and he goes kind of crazy. Um, this is before movies were more sophisticated about dealing with PTSD. Um, but or the other human feelings. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that too. Um... <laughs> so, all right. So the these point two is, guys come back. Well, yeah. Well, the the two guys and but it's three guys. And the main guy is played by Alan Ladd, and he comes home to his wife and. He found out earlier on that his son died, but he thought it was like an accident. Uh, it turns out that his wife was kind of complicit in his in their kid dying through like a drunk driving accident, and he kind of wanders off and doesn't want anything else to do with her. And that night, um, she dies, and so he becomes like the chief suspect of you know he must have killed his wife, and you know, the cops are trying to find him. But what if someone else went into the room? Yeah, yeah, yada. And there's a dame uh, played by Veronica Lake. And, you know, it's, again... Dames is trouble, Jack. Dames is always trouble. Um, you know, again, it's... Raymond Chandler is one of those writers who just has a really specific way of, of writing. Um, oh, that was something else I wanted to mention about The Big Sleep. The script um, was written by the likes of William Faulkner and uh, Leigh Brackett. And that name might not mean anything, but Leigh Brackett... Uh, her final script was The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. So, you want to talk about that kind of career, going from The Big Sleep to The Empire Strikes Back. And she died while the movie was in production, so... who? Yeah. Um, but th there's a certain rhythm and a kind of thing to the dialogue in Chandler movies, like Big Sleep and The, Black and the Blue Dahlia, um, where it's very fast-paced. Um, you know, there's a lot of style and machismo i guess you could say yeah um but what's interesting why you mentioned the black dahlia and that was you know of course the murder case that happened uh 
in in the late 40s. Yeah. Um, it involved it because I forget her name was her name Elizabeth Short. I'm, I probably remember the woman who died. I don't know. Yeah, I because I actually saw the the Black Dahlia movie a while back and kind of sucked. Oh, <laughs> oh, I did it. Did you actually see that movie or was that? I remember seeing. I, I remember, that. but I you remember, remember hearing being about it. and hearing the reviews. Well, all you have to know is it involves a necktie strangler, and <sighs> it's serious. Um, but the point is, um, she went to go see the the black the Blue Dahlia movie, and told like this bartender about it, and I think she got kind of a nickname with that involved, and. I forget the details. So, but... so the Black Dahlia murders are named after Blue Dahlia because the victim went to see Blue Dahlia That's before correct. she was murdered. Something like that. Again, I could be wrong, but it does involve the movie The Blue Dahlia involving the, why it was called The Black yeah, Dahlia. Yeah, that sounds like a bad headline that would run in L.A. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I recommend both those movies. The Big Sleep more than The Blue Dahlia, but The Blue Dahlia is still a good movie, especially you know if you're a film noir junkie like I am. That's, uh, like, the, the one thing against it is that Alan Ladd was not a very good actor. He was mm. kind of bland. Um, Veronica Lake is a little bit better. She was, you also might remember her from Sullivan's Travels, if you ever get to see that I, movie. I've seen Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, she was the, she was the woman. Another good movie about making movies. There you go. And you know what that, you know, you remember the movie in the movie? Oh, brother, where art thou? There you go. Yeah. Hollywood's biggest in-joke. Yes. <laughs> Okay, and this is my very last movie to talk about, because I just saw this yesterday. Speaking of making movies, you know, movies about making movies, um, is this new flick called Top 5. And uh, it's out in theaters now. I saw that on your list, and I instantly became interested. Okay, well... It's it's... not the uh, long-awaited sequel to High Fidelity. This is something completely different. Isn't that right, Jack? <laughs> no. I don't even know why I was laughing at that. It wasn't even that funny. Um, you're not, you can't win them all. Uh, <laughs> okay. No. So tell me about Top 5. This is a movie starring Chris Rock. He was also the writer-director. Oh. Um, so it's kind of an auteur type of thing. And it takes its cue a little bit from Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. Um that was a movie where Woody Allen played a filmmaker, probably not too much unlike himself. And, you know, his whole complaint in the movie was, you know, I don't want to make funny movies anymore. I, I, I want to make serious movies about, like, the human condition. And, uh, and so Chris That's Rock That's the best is, impression you've done all night. Well, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, the, uh, like, Chris Rock's character in the movie, he, he plays this guy... Not he's not completely like Chris Rock. He's kind of in a way closer like Martin Lawrence. He's been in his main claim to fame is that he's done these uh, Hammy the Bear movies, where he is a guy in a bear costume who's a cop. Okay. <laughs> yes. It doesn't make much sense, but it's a it's comedy. It's a movie within a movie, so yes. I'll, I'll take it. Yes. Um. And so, but he he doesn't want to keep doing that. He wants to be taken more seriously. And so the movie takes place over like the Channing course. Like Channing Tatum. In manner of speaking, I guess. Go yeah. on. Um, but um, the character in the movie, yeah, it, go, it goes over the course of this day and night, and it's on the day that his first serious movie's opening, which is where he plays like this Haitian uh, revolutionary leader who kills like thousands of white people. 
And so it's kind of like the joke where they show him like running with the slaves, speaking in Haitian, and um, it's it's pretty funny seeing that. But anyway, a large bulk of the movie is following Chris Rock's character going around New York City, um, doing these like uh, press bits for the movie, and he's followed by this female journalist, uh, played by Rosario Dawson, and the movie's story gets kind of contrived at parts. There are things you learn about the characters that it just doesn't feel that true. But the movie is very funny. And that's like what carries it over like completely. Like there are just yeah. scenes where uh, you're just laughing the whole, like all the while. Um, and again, it's, it's a curious thing because if I was just going on the story itself and the kind of turns it takes, like in the third act, I would say that it kind of falters. Like, there's a whole set piece where uh, the Chris Rock character, like, he used to be a stand-up comedian, and he kind of left it behind to become a movie star. Um, through circumstances that are too complicated to get through here, he is is back in a comedy club, and he does a set on stage. Now, this comes as really contrived, in a way, to me. It comes in a way that just doesn't seem, like, organic to the story. It just kind of happens because the script says oh, I have to now have my moment of redemption. I have to have my moment where something really good happens to me after this day and night where crap has been thrown my way. But what saves it is that it's a very funny stand-up performance mm -hmm. that Chris Rock gives because it's Chris Rock and his stand-up has always been like one of the best out there for me. Right. So, yeah, top five. Good movie. Um you know, it's a crowd pleaser, and it's 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 worth checking out. Great. So and one last film I want to talk about. I did not watch this film in its, in its entirety. I saw it kind of like I saw Tangled. Okay. I saw parts of it because it was shown in a classroom. Uh, and I I'd seen the movie before, but it's been a long time. The Untouchables. You you watch this in. One of the classes you substitute? Yes. An article which I believe appeared in a newspaper asked why, since you are, or it would seem that you are in effect the mayor of Chicago, you've not simply been appointed to that position. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, it's touching. Like a lot of things in life, we laugh because it's funny and we laugh because it's true. Some people say, reformers here say, put that man in jail. What does he think he is doing? Well, what I hope I'm doing, and here's where your English paper's got a point, is I'm responding to the will of the people. <laughs> <laughs> people are going to drink. You know that, I know that. We all know that. And all I do is act on that. Really? It was, uh, it was, all right. Was me... it, a, was it a history class? It was a history class, but let me get to... <laughs> Let me get to uh, my uh, problems I, I, with this, first had of all. You, had you seen it before? I have seen The Untouchables before. See, I, I kind of love uh, The Untouchables. I know that it's it's not a great film. No, but I think it's, it's certainly not. That's I, but something I, I realized but it's after a, very, a while. But it's a very enjoyable film, though. It just has all these set pieces that well, kind of work for me. Here's the problem. It, it does have a lot of set pieces, and it has a soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. Of course, that's great. And, you know, it's kind of like late Ennio Morricone where it has all that synthesized stuff. Like, Is it synthesized? I thought well, it was... not, not like synthesized, but, I mean, it's it, it feels like it was 
it was composed on a keyboard. Huh. That's not the point. It's still a good soundtrack. But the thing I, I my first thing about the Untouchables is is Kevin Costner a good actor? <laughs> That's probably one of uh, the yeah, eternal questions. Let me, let me, I've seen him in 13 days, and I haven't seen that in a while, so I can't really judge it. I saw him in Field of Dreams. I'm trying to think of other movies where Kevin I've seen Kevin Costner. And I, nothing, liked him in, I liked him in JFK. JFK, right. No, I... Uh, he's more of a star than really a good actor. I agree. Even in JFK, I like remembering what I remember about JFK. There, there are moments where he. You know what it is? He is good in the movie. He's surrounded by better people. Maybe you're right. I mean, there, there are a lot of great actors in JFK, and I would love to talk about JFK, but now we can't do that. Uh, but his performance in in The Untouchables is very uh, lame. <laughs> And yeah. I don't know if that's because of the script, which is not good. <laughs> I like some of the script. Well, that, when Sean Connery is saying things, he's good. But Sean Connery is the... Uh, he is the experienced Irish cop, even though he speaks in plainly a Scottish accent. See, I was going <laughs> to say he's the Optimus Prime of The Untouchables. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> he, to bring he, it back around. He plays the, that equivalent role. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is, it was... It's a movie about prohibition, mm-hmm. and that's the reason they were watching it in the history movie, in the history class. Uh, they were talking about the twenties, and as and here's what the teacher said, who was with me, is like, "All right, we're learning about the nineteen twenties and about prohibition. Here's a movie about prohibition in the nineteen twenties. First scene, nineteen thirty. <laughs> so we've gotten the decade <laughs> wrong altogether. See, the the if I was teaching that class, I mean. I can understand why he would show The Untouchables. It's, I hasten to use the word classic movie, but it is, it's a well-made movie of that type. But, but, but if I was in that class, I would not show that. I would show, I would show. It's not a good historical film. I would show. A, wrong decade. B, it's a very, it's a romanticized movie about a very violent time in, in, in. The 1930s of Chicago. In Amer- yeah, in early American history. And you could talk about that, but... And there are scenes that uh, took the the, uh, the students by surprise, which I was glad at. Because yeah. these were these were high schoolers, and I, you imagine... A lot of us imagine high schoolers as jaded. Yeah. Uh, because of their, the saturation in the internet and YouTube and social media. Uh-huh. And get off my lawn, you darn dirty yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, there's an early scene in The Untouchables where a girl uh, picks up a briefcase in a uh, in a drugstore. Yeah, I remember that. That's the opening of the movie. Yeah, and they got and they had quite a reaction to that scene. Yeah. And there's also another scene where Al, uh, not Al, you know, uh, Robert, Robert De Niro is at a banquet table. I with get a baseball nowhere player. unless the, the team, team wins. Wins. Yes, team. and that got reactions from them yeah. but other but you have these very brutal scenes but then there's a scene in the middle of the movie where they're trying to stop a, a shipment of canadian whiskey i remember and that. they're riding on the backs of horses yeah. to this two well, like partnering cowboys with the yeah <laughs> and it's and it's silly it is but i still you know what it is i i like the, I like it's the most romanticized thing. It belongs in like an old western, but they've put <laughs> it inside this crime mob movie, kind of yeah. like The Godfather, yeah. and it clashes 
And there's also a weird thing in the Untouchables where people get hit with guns, and it just seems like they got tapped, and <laughs> yeah. then they went, Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> there's this... It, they have really awkward scenes where that happens. And and it was directed by Brian De Palma. Yeah, I like Brian De Palma. And movies. it's like he said, all right, I'm doing this movie this week. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get this done and I can do something else. I think he had a lot of fun making that movie. But, why but there it... are good scenes in that movie and, and they're often the, the most brutal scenes. But then yeah. they're cut into the... And then there's the, that one scene in the train station which has been parodied by the Naked Gun series very effectively. And that scene is crazy. Well, well, you know what that scene was known like that. Well, it's funny you mentioned Naked Gun because that whole train sequence is itself an homage to the Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. But I mean, it's still a very strange thing to put in there. Like it clashes with itself. There are these romantic, like actiony moments, like the riding on the horses and that scene in the train station. And then there are these very brutal scenes like the like the dining room mm-hmm. and the and the salute and uh when sean connery gets yeah mm-hmm. and <laughs> well it's and it's like its tone is all mixed up yeah i, I could and see there are that. scenes where kevin coster comes home and he and he hugs and kisses his is his family yeah that's it's so soft and schmaltzy sure. and it's like he couldn't decide whether he wanted to make a like a crime film like The Godfather, or if he wanted to make this romanticized movie like the television series with all these cliches. Yeah, and it's not well. Uh, and there's there are lines in it that are just kind of that just kind of fall flat. Okay. And it's uh, it's kind of like the only reason you would you would want to see the Untouchables and is so that you can work your way up to movies like The Godfather. And Miller's Crossing. Well, yeah, it's yeah. I would say yeah. The Untouchables. It's like not... a kid's Godfather. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yes, I, I still like the movie a lot. Yeah, I mean Sean Connery would be like, "What are you prepared to do?" Um, well, he doesn't yell that, but that that's a good does. scene. Yeah, no, but, there, but, there is a lot. But of that scenes. isn't addressed until like the end when it doesn't even matter. He says like, "If you want to take down Capone, you have to go beyond what you're willing to do. You're you're gonna have to step outside your comfort zone." And that never happens until like late in the movie when it doesn't even matter mm. when when Kevin Costner has that him guy off the, off, the, off the roof yeah and it's like that didn't even matter in the plot and finally oh, sure. you you do the thing that mm-hmm. Sean Connery was talking about yeah as a quick side note um, since you know the movie's te- technically about Elliot Ness um, well I would love to see one day and it's been talked about for quite a number of years. Um, earlier this year, I read uh, this graphic novel called Torso, and the movie—the uh, not the movie—the book takes place in 1935, and relates to kind of like the first big serial killer that happened in uh, Chicago. I don't know if it was Chicago or L.A. You read the book, right? No, I did. It was just—it was a little while ago. I'm trying to remember that if. Because Elliot Ness basically comes to the city. It's not, but it's not Chicago. If, I think it was a, it might have been either L.A. or somewhere else. But he comes as like this new special prosecutor, and he has to kind of track this uh, killer who's like cutting up people and leaving nothing but their torsos. Oh. And it's a, it's a, it was. It was looked at for a while to be made into a movie, like David Fincher looked at possibly making it, and I think I would love to see that, like kind of 
a new movie with Elliot Ness, but you know the tone is a little bit more graphic throughout, yeah. and you have a consistent movie. But that's an interesting idea. I mean, Elliot Ness became famous because of the you know taking down. Yeah, Al and and the and the book is also kind of about that. How he has all of this fame around Capone sur surrounding him, and you know it kind of helps him get that job. But he wants to try to just focus on this case. And there's a lot of, like, corruption going on in the city that he also has to deal with. And people are like, you know, we gave you this favor, right, to bring you in here. We can take you right out. Uh, that's like a movie that. I'd like to see where Elliot Ness, like, he's dealt with Al Capone and he's famous. But once he gets into this serial killer, he, he realizes he's way in over his head. Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and he has this whole thing about, uh, this whole insecurity about, yeah, I took down Al Capone, but I, I got him on income tax evasion. Yes. And, and now I'm dealing with a person who is cutting mm -hmm. up people and leaving yeah. only their torsos. Exactly. And you also see, you know, how his, it affects his marriage as well. You know, the Untouchables, that's kind of like a real rose-colored yes. portrait of marriage. the rosiest. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, and that's Torso and the Untouchables. Wow, I think I found my movie pitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, move why along Why don't, uh, we've, do we've done our movies, why don't we take a break? Let's take a little break, because guys. Because I have to stretch my legs. Let's stretch our legs, guys. Thank you. We'll be right back. 